Welcome to Shorts Season 2. I'm Jen Thomas. I live in London, UK. And I'm Lizzie Falconer, and I live in Portland, Oregon. We are two long-distance friends who want to talk about what we're reading. This podcast is about how short stories can show the world through different perspectives. Today we're reading Dear Sophie by Emma Brankin, published in X-Ray Literary Magazine in July 2020. In this brief series of emails, Amy attempts to craft the perfect message to send to her friend Sophie on her wedding day. In a very modern, witty piece, we see Amy grapple with the guilt of missing her friend's wedding day, the shame and comparison of social media, and how to congratulate someone you care about when your own life is in shambles. Emma Brankin is a former journalist turned teacher from Glasgow, Scotland. She has recently returned to creative writing and her work can be found in Product Magazine and the Inspire Anthology. So Jen, what did you think? I love this story so much. I mean, every I feel like every episode I just start by going, I love this story, but I love this story. I love the structure of it. I loved how accessible it is, just this series. There isn't traditional narrative here. There is just draft after draft after draft of an email written by Amy to Sophie that she just doesn't send, doesn't send until the final, final email. And I love that structure. I was immediately felt like I could relate to this woman, to this character. And I loved how that played out. Yeah, we are two readers who love an author that plays with structure. That's for sure. And (laughs) if anyone hasn't figured it out yet, we only choose stories that we really love and we really want to talk about. But you picked up this one from the beginning. When we were first reading through the dozens that were submitted, you loved this one from the beginning. And it's so very British. And I have many questions for you about some of this very British language and what's it, what it means. But this is a super interesting, unique story. So should we just dive in? Should we dive into the first email? Yes. Uh, the first lines of this uh, of this story. Dear Sophie, congratulations on the happiness. Love, Amy. Delete. It's just so, it's so good. You just know, immediately know where we're, where we're at. Like we know that Amy is sort of sitting there starting to draft these messages. We know that Sophie, we know that something's happened to Sophie. Has she gotten engaged? Has she gotten a promotion? Has she gotten married? And just that sort of delete is like, okay, we know that we're with someone who is just on the edge, not in a great place, not feeling confident. And even that line, congratulations on the happiness. It's like, oh, that's a bit biting. What's going on here? (laughs) Nobody (laughs) says congratulations on the happiness, period. Who's actually congratulating you on on your happiness? (laughs) Yeah, not, not super sincere. So it sort of, you know, immediately I was totally taken aback by the structure. And then the second email is almost heartbreaking. Dear Sophie, you look so in love. I love the dress, love the shoes, love the veil. I wish you a lifetime of love. Love, Amy. Delete. So we're at a wedding, Mm -hmm. but she's obviously now we realize Amy's not there. There's something that she's somehow observing this from afar because she's drafting these emails. So we start to build up this picture of what's happening, of the distance and you know, again, this sense of kind of insincerity that's coming through this series of writing. Yeah. And it's all observations. You look so in love. I love the dress, the shoes, the veil. It's not like, 
I'm so happy that you finally shared, you know, your life with someone who cares about you, just like we've talked about. I mean, you're just getting literally superficial observations from Amy. Very different side. Which is hit home in email number three. And I promise you, we won't just read you the whole story. (laughs) But some of these are really helpful. It's just really helpful to set the context because in email number three, dear Sophie, how did you lose so much weight? I thought you were off Coke. I have collarbone envy. (laughs) So we're kind of like in sincerity or kind of distance and untrustworthiness of this character is suddenly okay now we're now we're hitting some home truths like when you're observing someone as you say we're kind of we we end up realizing you know she's seeing all of this through social media it's so easy to be judgmental and it's Mm -hmm. so easy when you're writing something personal or you're kind of thinking about what you want to say to someone like this is obviously the unfiltered version this is the judgmental kind of cruel flash of thought that can come into your head when you're looking at something or somebody on Instagram or wherever that you write and then you delete and you just get that out of your system. Yep. And isn't it interesting how like the one of the first things she comments on is her friend's body. The first thing is like, oh, I'm envious of how thin you look. Oof. As we go through this story, uh, it's really, it could also be called shit we don't talk about enough. <laughs> I mean, there's some real honesty in this piece. And then there's also, it's her trying to be honest, but then her censoring herself to try to be acceptable to her friend. It's so short it's, and smart and interesting. It's also, it's, it's also honesty. I mean, we see a lot more of this kind of brutal honesty later, but this is kind of, this honesty is still quite playful. It's almost like that knee-jerk reaction you get. It's not like she feels like she should say to her friend, like, how did you lose so much weight? You know, that's just a kind of natural kind of impulse that we might get when you see someone. It's like, obviously that's not something she wants to say. (laughs) It's not something she feels she should say, but it's just like, you know, I'm going to hold something back, but like this is, you know, and it's kind of, it's it's a different version of an internal monologue, but because it's done kind of outwardly facing on the surface, it feels very jarring that she would actually be like, dear Sophie, you've lost so much weight. Just sort of that, that sort of thing that we don't talk about that we would never say, but getting that perspective from Amy. Yeah. And we're wondering where Amy is throughout all of this. We don't know yet. And then in the fifth letter, we come to learn a lot more about what's happening and where Amy is, why she's writing these letters, what's happening. She writes, Dear Sophie, I'm typing this from the comfort of my crumb strewn sofa, wondering what you're up to right now. I keep checking my Instagram feed, but nobody's uploaded anything for 30 minutes. Are you mid-first dance, gazing into his eyes, underscored by a simpering Ed Sheeran track? It does not pass me by that you are swirling around in a haze of romance while I sit on my sofa, bleeding into an industrial-sized nappy. Love, Amy. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah. So from these kind of observational, very short previous emails, drafts, I should say previous email drafts, everyone is is, uh, followed by delete we suddenly we suddenly understand that she's at home she said you know the crumbs strewn sofa like she's been eating she sat on her sofa and she's bleeding into a into a massive sanitary pad so we can either we you know there's a few different things that that could mean we find out a little bit later that she's going through an abortion she's doing it at home and we are jolted into this alternate narrative really 
that it feels like a the rugs pulled out from under us from this kind of humorous, scathing, very witty first series of emails. We're suddenly in something a lot darker, a lot bleaker, and a lot more lonely. Yeah. And it's painful. It's exactly what you're saying. It's darker, it's lonelier. And suddenly, as readers, we're feeling a lot more of Amy's pain. You know what she's doing. She's sitting, she's saying, she's sitting on that couch, checking Instagram obsessively while she's going through an abortion, which is painful and horrifying and lonely and scary, looking at her friend's picture-perfect Instagram wedding. I mean, maybe we all haven't been in that exact situation, but how many times have you been feeling bad about yourself or your life and you've turned to social media and it's made you feel worse because of someone's curated perfection? And Amy's just calling that out. She's obsessively looking. She's imagining what Ed Sheeran's song they're listening to. And it's sad. I'm feeling really, really sad immediately for Amy. Yeah. And the sadness continues as we learn more and more about Amy's situation. You know, we spoke about loneliness and this is a lonely thing. It is lonely to sit on your phone looking at somebody, you know, somebody's Instagram feed and pictures are going up in real time. The wedding is happening now. You know, there's a moment later where she says, finally, someone's posted the cake cutting photo. Like she's, we know what the steps are as somebody goes through their wedding day. We are waiting for the first dance. We are waiting for the wedding cake cutting. We are waiting for, you know, these markers of the day. And she's just refreshing the feed and she's on her own with her phone, or at least that's what we think. And then you realize, no, she's not on her own physically. There's this, there's this guy with her. So her ex-boyfriend, Colin, is, you know, with her and has kind of come around to be supportive as she goes through this. But he's asleep on the sofa and not part of what she's going through physically, but isn't kind of even emotionally able to support her. So that loneliness just deepens with these reflections of others around her that just aren't engaging, whether it's the social media, whether it's the TV that's on in the background and whether it's Colin, she's just here on her own. We know she's she's very lonely. She's supposed to be at this wedding. We don't know, we can guess why she's not there. She's sitting there with her ex-boyfriend who's asleep on the couch next to her. And she talks about how he said he wanted to be there because it's happening to both of us. And this makes her really mad. And you start to this is another way that she's feeling super alone because it's not really happening to both of them. They're broken up. It's physically happening to her. She's the one suffering the consequences. She's the one bleeding into the nappy. And she's just, it feel like she is feeling so much loneliness, shame, but also anger. Cause there's a few times that she comes after her friend. She's like writing these notes being like, congratulations on your happiness. And then she'll say things like, This demure bride vibe is really working for you. You could never tell you were a couple who met at a Borrowlands rave, which what is, I can guess what Borrowlands is, but what is it, Jen? What what does that mean? I mean, you might not get the guess bang on. So we heard at the top, Emma Brankin, the author is uh, Scottish. So Borrowlands is a nightclub in Glasgow and it is notorious. It is an absolute like party zone. So like in the 90s, it was kind of the height of like dirty, massive raves, like huge DJs, like mess, mess, mess. In Scotland, they didn't have the same licensing laws as the rest of the UK. So you could like literally be open and drink for forever. This is also (laughs) also where I grew up. So uh, not in Glasgow, but in Scotland. So those licensing... (laughs) Those licensing rules were vital to my youth, 
but yeah, so people would just be absolutely off their face at these raves. They were notorious. They were extraordinary. They were huge. <laughs> so her friend is putting on this like beautiful image at her wedding, which we've all we've all seen this of like, here I am, the pure young bride. And <laughs> her friend is like, you wouldn't have known that you literally met at the dirtiest, weirdest, darkest party Massive in the 90s. <laughs> Biggest party that there is. Yeah, amazing. And like, you know, she's mentioned kind of taking coke and stuff before. So, she, you know, she's sort of contrasting this, like these things I know about my friend with the imagery that we see on social media. And again, it's just heightening that sort of disconnect between the reality of Amy. So the reality of her on this sofa, but also the reality of these this friendship that she has and the reality of these people that, that she knows who are getting married and the picture perfect Prince Charming version of the wedding that she's seeing kind of take place. Absolutely. And what I love about Brankin's writing is that she uses such wonderful details like the Barolin's rave. I hate my American accent sometimes when I'm trying to say these like very British or Scottish things. I just feel like I'm flattening it and it's (laughs) ruining the sound of it. Uh, But she has these great details of Amy on this couch and Amy says, Colin has fallen asleep after his third beer. So I've paused the true crime documentary about bank robbing priests he wanted to watch. And it's just, there's like a bit of absurdity and also like very right now. We know so many people, including myself. I'm not above this. I wish it wasn't true, but I love true crime. That so many women love true crime. And she's sitting on the couch, like experiencing the after effects of an abortion, watching an absolutely absurd true crime documentary about priests that are robbing a bank. And it's just like, Oh God, she's really in a moment. She's really, really in the moment in her but of her life. That, doesn't that tell us so much? Because the fucking true crime documentary is what Colin wanted to watch and he hasn't even stayed awake. Oh, that's right. Yeah, of course. Ew. Like this is Sick. happening to both of us. You came round here and you wanted to watch a true crime documentary. So you necked three beers and passed out while oh I'm going through this. Oh yeah. my goodness. Oh my God. Burn it down. Outraged. Um, yeah outraged and just this sense of like how crappy her life is right now you know it's not even like what i think is amazing about the way that rankin has structured this story is that the the trauma the emotional trauma the physical trauma of the abortion is incredibly present but it's not foregrounded in the story it's like it's just it's just there for us and actually so these moments of kind of anger and judgment and what the hell is happening to my life that is coming out through these drafts is somehow it somehow tells us so much about this moment and what this moment means to Amy and how she's kind of dealing with it but without her saying to us directly or you know through this story directly what the impact of this experience actually is on her and I think that's so clever because I think it's 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 not kind of leaning into the narrative that might that might surround traditionally you know what a woman quote unquote should or shouldn't be feeling as she's going through an abortion but instead you just get a sense of a of a person in a in crisis in a mess in a you know looking at her life and judging herself yeah it's the it, when you were just talking Jen I was thinking about how she does that through the use of these small details you know we're not She's not grounding us in like, is it right or wrong to have an abortion, which we don't want to read that story. We don't. Absolutely not. It's about how she's had this life changing, painful moment. And 
her stupid boyfriend's half drunk on the couch after he watched her have an abortion while he was eating a breakfast burrito. Like, it's just so it's like gruesome in the mundanity of it. Mm. It's just like, how can he be half drunk watching this movie while and asleep while I'm experiencing this? And he has the audacity to claim that this is happening to both of us. He's not, he's saying it's happening to both of us. It looks like he's not putting in even the least amount of emotional effort to actually care about her. And we see that as she keeps writing that this is an ongoing pattern with her and Colin, our new least favorite character. I think it's interesting that you described it as well as a life-changing moment, because again, that's not language that we get from Brankin. Amy doesn't describe what's happening to her as something that's life-changing. She is having this experience next to the life-changing experience that's happening to her friend as as her friend kind of makes this hugely positive life change to get married and kind of has these incredible images of the life that she'll now have with her, you know, she uses the words, the phrase Prince Charming. And I kind of love that there's the fact of the abortion isn't labored upon and isn't sort of seen as this huge moment but we understand the significance of it because it's running in parallel with this wedding and you sort of get the sense that amy is seeing the significance of it i think it's very kind of minutely structured to make sure that we don't pass any judgment or put any weight on the abortion that isn't kind of coming directly from from amy herself i agree and now that I almost want to amend my comments because I think maybe it isn't life-changing. Maybe that's my own putting that on our character, that this is a life-changing moment. Maybe the focus is actually that maybe it's a turning point moment, but it's almost she starts to see in this experience how Colin just never shows up for her. And in the many ways that she has chosen him, she has chosen to cede to his desires and his wants. And she sees it close up because of this experience. But I think you're right. I don't think it's supposed to be a life-changing moment. I don't, And I think that that's probably some old thinking. And that's why this story is so good. It's also a sort of, what I love is it's like a life perspective moment. So she sees herself in this moment through the eyes of her friend who's having this wedding. And it is a moment, but it's it's a moment where she kind of, it seems like she's got kind of this fog has been lifted and she's got clarity and she can kind of see what see everything just as it is so she sees you know she sees what her friend is is going through at her wedding and kind of calls out the bullshit or some of the bullshit of like the social media around it and then there's that moment where she looks at Colin and you know her relationship with Colin is incredibly complicated like she when she started to go through the abortion she says there's a moment of sadness because the only thing continuing to tie herself to this ex-boyfriend has is gone and actually so you kind of understand that you know the depth of her attachment to him or love for him we don't really sort of see what that is but there is a real loss there's a real mourning for the relationship but in this kind of moment of you know pure sight she looks over at him at the sofa on the sofa and she says actually now that I've been staring at him for so long He's starting to look less peaceful and more smug. Fuck, he really is smug, isn't he? With his stupid, smug, asleep face. I bet that whatever dream he's having right now, he's being a proper bellend in it. I mean, it's so good. Like, she just, she's just like, holy moly, this man is just awful. 
and she just sees it like for the it's like she sees it for the first time she's funny as shit i mean she's going through a terrible moment she's looking at instagram and feeling like shit but she's funny as hell but jen what does that mean the bell end what does that mean oh my god <laughs> i don't know Oh, no. I mean, this is British, but I think particularly a Scottish word. It basically means a dick. It's a, a bell end. <laughs> oh, God. What does it feel like to be so much funnier than Americans? What does it feel like? <laughs> does it feel gratifying? Yeah, if you unpack the phrase, you'll start to understand what it means. Um, <laughs> I was like, that's what it means. the end of a tolling bell? Like, oh, God, embarrassing. So speaking of Britishisms, I don't understand. There's a line in, in one of her letters where she's talking about how she wants some additional support from Colin, who's being just a total ass. And she says, although how much sympathy can you demand from your ex-boyfriend as you reunite for one last hurrah in the abortion clinic? I might write in to Dear Deirdre. So Jen, I can't even say that name, but who, who is Dear Deirdre? Okay, so Dear Deirdre is an agony aunt column in the Sun newspaper, which is like the epitome of tabloid here in the UK. And her columns are kind of batshit. So people write in with problems and like genuine people, it seems, write in with genuine problems, like readers of the Sun write in with problems and they are just extraordinary, like stuff that you just couldn't imagine so i had a little look because i thought i didn't think deirdre would have uh, crossed the atlantic necessarily so i have some examples and <laughs> this i'm just gonna read some of the questions that she gets posed dear deirdre will playing with my breasts make them bigger my boyfriend <laughs> insists it will Oh my He's God. 22 and I'm 19. <laughs> he spends the evenings fondling my breasts to see if his theory works yikes yikes and like she, she just has this reputation. It's basically the most absurd, kind of shocking, weird s problems that people write in. So the idea that, you know, Amy and her ex-boyfriend are kind of in the position where it's, things are so bleak that, that they would write to Deirdre is like, it's really telling. There's just a lot of, yeah, like even as I look at these other Dear Deirdre columns, I mean, to be fair, this is a whole other podcast in and of itself. It's just people kind yes. of <laughs> yes. looking at the Dear Deirdre columns because also some of her responses are great. So I'm going to read you this, this other one I found, which I love. My girlfriend doesn't seem interested in me anymore. She's asleep by 9 p.m. Years ago, we talked about having a threesome. We even got together with a female neighbor one night, but my girlfriend just kissed her. I think she might be interested in a girl I work with and I'd love to see them together. Should I suggest it? Deirdre says, bad idea. And that's it. <laughs> Deirdre knows where it's at. <laughs> She's not even going to waste her time writing more. She just sends it back to the editor. Yeah, yeah, I'm done. These two we words. Are. <laughs> um, yeah, she's an icon. She is oh a British icon. Oh my God. That's very funny because we have, you know, we have like Dear Abby as our agony aunt in the US, but those are literally to me some of the most truly boring advice columns to read because it's like Dear Abby... I am not sure if I should invite my second cousin's sister to my wedding. She is upset with me. Like, it's so boring. I like dear, dear Dree better. Did I say it right? You did. Nailed oh, you're it. one of us now. Oh, um, so close. 
Yeah, and I was looking as we were prepping for this podcast, I was looking at like examples of Deirdre kind of from this week and they they remain absolute gems. So if anyone wants to follow Dear Deirdre, I highly recommend it. Great life advice. And maybe maybe our girl, Amy, needs needs this advice. Because at this point, I mean, how many letters has she already written? We're about halfway through the story and it looks like she's written 10 letters that she's, or more letters that she's written and deleted to Sophie. And we're still not quite at the heart of the issue. We still don't really quite know what she's trying to say, what she wants to convey. We're still right in there with her. Yeah. And things get kind of darker and more honest from here. So there's a line in one of the emails more towards the end where she says, I'm so sorry. Your marriage has been the stick with which I've mercifully flogged myself this evening. I will cope with this on my own. And you just, you know, that that sense of her sort of spiraling and starting to deal with this experience that she's having starts to come starts to come out and she says i need to get used to not always turning to you in a crisis hopefully i've hit my crisis limit anyway i've lost a baby a boyfriend what was left of my dignity and now i'm sort of losing you too she's going through it as she's seeing her friend get married and she's seeing that as a loss. And I just feel that's a really interesting perspective to have when you start to see your friends' lives change around you. I don't know what your kind of reflection was when you heard that, but for me, I was really I was really hit by the honesty of that and how how brutally true that that felt. I got the sense, like you did at this point, that this was kind of the first time that Amy's also being honest with herself about the situation. She's, you know, writing is very therapeutic and she's kind of allowing herself to open up and be honest about the situation and how frankly, really fucking shitty it is in this letter to her friend in the way that she wishes she could talk to her friend and exactly what you're saying, that she gets a sense of how very alone she feels and how behind her friend she feels who's having this huge milestone. And she's starting to reflect more on her relationship with Colin and really how bad it is. We, we find out that Colin actually has a girlfriend and who doesn't even know about Amy. And Amy starts to admit about just how bad that relationship was. She talks about how, too, in the moment that she tells Colin that she's pregnant. So after they've broken up, but then she realizes she's pregnant and tells him he cried. She writes, he said he was sorry for the way he had treated me. He sat with me for hours. In a horrible way, it was everything I'd ever wanted. I do wonder if I agreed to the operation because I care more about making him happy than I care about making myself sad. And then one of my favorite sentences of the whole thing, I'm looking forward to the slow and painful process of regrowing my backbone. I mean, if you've ever loved someone who maybe didn't deserve it, or if you've ever been in a relationship where you felt like you demanded someone's attention and they just couldn't give it to you. I mean, this hit me kind of like square in the chest in the way that I'm like, oh, maybe I need to go lay down for a minute after reading it because it's so painful. She's wanted this man to love her for so long. And finally, she gets the attention from him that she wants after they've broken up and now she's pregnant. I mean, shit. Yeah. And in that moment, she, you know, she sort of says she's got everything that she thought she wanted and then he comes around and is just nowhere i mean this guy is just awful he's awful <laughs> like 
suddenly the clarity that she has about herself and her situation, which, you know, we've seen her have this kind of clear sight of Colin and clear sight of her friend. And now she sort of seems to be really honest with herself, exactly as you say, and sort of really articulate where she's at and why it's so painful. And she's mystified in some ways, you know, she's being honest about how bad it is, but she's also just surprised in some ways, you know, earlier she'd written, how have you willingly chosen to spend a lifetime with an actual human man? (laughs) Yeah. That void that is emerging between her and Sophie just feels like it gets bigger and bigger and bigger through through this story. So there's a moment where she says, I will cope with this on my own. Grief and pain have no business intruding on your wedding day. And it's important for me to become more self-sufficient anyway. You won't always be able to come around and criticize my 3am ASOS panic orders. Recently, it's taken you days to reply when I send you Chris Hemsworth surfing photos. And it's, you're just getting this sense of like that gulf between them, which is kind of shown to us up front by kind of what's happening to each of them on this specific day in terms of these, these events that they're experiencing is actually, it's an emotional distance that she's seeing will only get bigger. So she's just that sense of like, she's lost, she's losing her friend because her friend is getting married and her, you know, isn't going to be responding to texts and her life is going to change. And, you know, just that sense that she is dealing with kind of grief and pain of all of these losses together. I just found that really starkly and beautifully articulated. And again, I just don't think it's something that people talk about of like, you want to be supportive and we are supportive when when friends get married or when friends have children. But it's an immediate shift it does it does and can create a real shift with the relationships that you have in your life other relationships which have been formative and emotional and as close as they can be and you know what we realize through this story is she's not gonna tell Sophie what's happening to her you know I actually hadn't quite picked up on her use of like the Chris Hemsworth photos she talks about their Love Island WhatsApp group drag queen karaoke, you know, these moments that you're referring to that show, as she's referencing them, the real emotional gap that comes between them. And to me, it's also like they're friends, but what they're talking about is so surface level. They're not connecting emotionally at all. And I think that happens so often is that especially with text communication and everything, we resort to communicating to each other in in group texts, which I am so bad about group texting, but sending memes, sending things that aren't actually like, how are you doing? What's going on? But Amy seems to really cling to as a lifeboat. And honestly, at this point, I'd forgotten that she wasn't sending these emails, even though it says delete. I was like, oh my gosh, I was in it with her. I'd completely forgotten. Yeah. These are just reflections that she's having and she knows she can't send, you know, she doesn't feel like she can send this to her friend on her wedding day. I mean, I have to say, Lizzie, if this was you and me, and it was your wedding day, I would be sending all of these emails, (laughs) probably voice notes. Just all of of those emotions would come out. Yeah. No holding back. But, you know, she doesn't feel like she can. And of course she doesn't feel like she can in a way because, you know, she's her friends there in the beautiful veil and the beautiful dress. And she's just 
feels like a lifetime away. But it's it makes it harder to read these because you realize she's never going to send them. Yeah. And it just makes me reflect on like how friendships change in the digital era. And as we get older and as people get married and have kids and and the way that when we present ourselves on social media as perfect beings, which is a whole nother podcast, like the distance that it creates between you and the people you love, if you're not communicating. And I mean, she's watching her friend have a picture perfect, beautiful wedding. Well, she's on a dirty couch with this idiot man like that. God, you just can't get over the difference. Okay. So then we get to the last two emails and this is where I remembered that she wasn't actually going to send them. She says, dear Sophie, there's one final thing I won't tell you. I'll never tell you. The operation didn't have to be today. I chose it. I chose to miss your wedding. And I think that that's supposed to be a big like mic drop moment. Like why would Amy ever do that? But to me, it seems like the most reasonable thing in the world. If I had just had an abortion, it doesn't matter if it was on the day or around the day. I don't think I would be an emotionally in an emotional place to be able to go celebrate my friend's wedding. I don't know. I totally understand her choosing to not be there. What do you, I don't know. What do yeah. you think, Jen? I mean, it's difficult because we don't know the, the sort of thorough motivation, but we do also, I think we do also understand through these email drafts that she maybe wouldn't have enjoyed this wedding anyway. Like maybe this is just a reason for her not to go because she wouldn't have wanted to go because she can't, she can't really, she's not really relating to this friend in the same way anymore. And she's just come out of a horrible breakup with a dickhead bloke that's, that's kind of screwed her over. She just, she doesn't want to be there. And, you know, the, the abortion isn't the, isn't the reason she's not there. And that is interesting, I think. You know, she chose not to go. Whether it's because, you know, the experience of having the abortion means that, as you say, like she wouldn't have been in the right headspace or she just wanted a reason not to. And this is a, this is a way she could she could not go to the wedding and you, she, she didn't want to be there. I think it's interesting that Branken doesn't explicitly explain that in any more detail, but it shows, again, just this distance between these two people. Because again, like not only did she not go to the wedding, but she'll never say that she could have chosen another day. And again, like you could say, you know what, I've just come out of a breakup and I don't think I can face being at your wedding. That's not an unreasonable thing to hear. You know, I was going through a possible pregnancy and termination and I don't think I can handle being at your wedding. That's not an unreasonable thing to hear. But the fact that she just knows she'll never say any of it, she won't be able to have that conversation. These two women, they're just... Their friendship is, it wouldn't support it, wouldn't support that honesty and that emotional honesty. Yeah. And, oh, it makes me so sad, I think, because, you know, I have friends like you and I have many female friends that are my family. And it makes me sad to think about a world in which one of them felt like they couldn't talk to me about this and this sort of distance. I think what's interesting, too, is at the end of this final confessional email, she admits in ways how her relationship with Colin and her preoccupation with Colin have made her a bad friend. You know, she gives an example of when Sophie needed support and she couldn't show up because she was thinking about Colin. And in many ways, this is a much, much bigger example in time of where she cannot show up for a friend because of her relationship with Colin. And she says, you know, I'm still pretending. I'll keep pretending. I won't send this. Sorry. Man. Yeah. And it's interesting, 
you know, we're talking a lot about social media and the pretense and the kind of show that we can put on online. And then this very real, very honest, you know, woman, Amy, in these emails, she's pretending to, she's going to put up a wall as well. She's going to put up her defenses and she's not going to be honest. So, you know, it's, it, it, we can't, we can't just sort of judge Sophie and the kind of beautiful wedding and beautiful kind of experience that the story that's playing out online it's the same stories happening here there's just people who who aren't being honest and aren't able to be vulnerable with each other and it's it's sad it's sad exactly as you say to think that these women are going through this kind of without being able to connect yeah she puts the wall like you're saying right back up and then she dives back into the kind of performance societal role for her final email that we think she sends it's just three sentences. Do you want to read it, Jen? Dear Sophie, congratulations. I'm so sad I couldn't be there. I can't wait to hear all about it when you get back from the honeymoon. Love, Amy. Ugh, what a journey we have been on. (laughs) Yeah. And I can imagine that. Like I can, Yeah. my my notes app is full of messages and emails and texts that I never sent. Like I just, you know, we want to be supportive. We want to be honest but not too honest you know if I I can hard relate to like this is what I want to say draft it draft it draft it draft it this is what I'll actually write and it's the polished polite safe version almost every time yep I'm in control nothing's wrong with me I am succeeding at life look at how eloquently I'm speaking and I understand it is Sophie's wedding you know there is I think good boundaries in that Amy doesn't need to bring her life, her sadness into that celebration of the wedding that day. But you do get the sense that she's never going to be honest about any of this. It is just going to be, if the relationship continues, just this dance of kind of competition almost and presenting who you think you should be. It's very sad. I just, I, ugh. especially because Amy's just, I like Amy a lot. I want Amy to be supported. And I want Colin to fuck off. (laughs) So, Jen, why do you think people should read this story? Because this story gives us so much substance within a very sparse and unique style. So the way that Branken has structured this narrative to play out, to give us tidbits of honesty and a very flawed and complicated character who is directly trying to speak to another character that we never see or meet is, it's so cleverly done. I I almost don't know how she does it. And for the narrative to play out, to be about, you know, a woman who's going through an abortion kind of live within the moments that we are with her is very unusual and really a story that we don't hear a lot, but it's done in a way that doesn't aim to shock or put a morality on the table for us to juggle with. It just it just allows the humanity of Amy to come through. I just think it's so clever. I, I was bowled over and I, I loved it from the first reading and I got more and more out of it the more times I read it. And I want to spend more time with with Amy. I want to find out about her life. What about you? I obviously, as always, agree with what you're sharing. But I think also what I love about this piece is something I love about 
the format of short stories in that I love when you read something and it captures the now in time and the particular voice, a person that reflects just what's happening now, all these references, the communication style, the Instagram, it feels like this story is happening right now. And that's so hard to do. And that's just why I love contemporary stories. And especially this one, the way it captures how humans and relationships change and shift under the current circumstances. So love this author's writing and just love it. So thanks for reading with me, Jen. Thanks for reading with me, Lizzie. In the next episode, which is the finale of short season two, we'll be reading one of my all-time favorite short stories, A Cheater's Guide to Love by Juno Diaz. You can read the story on newyorker.com. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen, and you can follow us on Twitter at ShortsThePod or ShortsThePodcast on Instagram. See you next week.